let me try to boil it down, you know, on my end. What I've always felt is that Section 230 is about protecting users, it's about expanding speech, it's about democratizing the internet. So that is fundamentally different than ChatGPT. ChatGPT does not do those things. I'm Quinta Jurassic, Senior Editor at Lawfare, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, May 2nd, 2023. Today, we're bringing you an episode of Arbiters of Truth, our series on the information ecosystem. Generative AI products have been tearing up the headlines recently. Among the many issues these products raise is whether or not their outputs are protected by Section 230, the foundational statute that shields websites from liability for third-party content. Who better to talk through this question with than the people who wrote Section 230 in the first place? Together with Matt Peralt, director of the Center on Technology Policy at UNC Chapel Hill, I sat down with Senator Ron Wyden and Chris Cox, formerly a U.S. congressman and SEC chairman. Cox and Wyden drafted the statute together in 1996, and they're skeptical that its protections apply to generative AI. Two notes before we begin. First, Senator Wyden was only able to join us for the first part of this conversation. So you'll hear a discussion with him and Representative Cox before we continue the discussion just with Representative Cox. And second, a disclosure. Matt consults on tech policy issues, including with platforms that work on generative artificial intelligence products and have interests in the issues discussed. It's the Lawfare Podcast, May 2nd. Cox and Wyden on Section 230 and Generative AI. The two of you drafted Section 230, and you have repeatedly spoken since the legislation was passed in 1996 about the original intent behind the bill. You spoke recently to the Washington Post about how you think Section 230 would map onto generative AI tools. Do you think Section 230 is going to protect generative AI platforms? Both of us have said Section 230 does not protect generative AI like ChatGPT or Google's Bard. And let me just give you the quick um, reason why. AI tools like ChatGPT, Bard's Stable Diffusion, others being rapidly integrated into popular digital services couldn't be protected, and it's not a particularly close call. What Chris and I were working on all these years was protecting users and sites for hosting hosting and organizing user speech. It shouldn't protect companies from the consequences of their own uh, actions and products. Now, systems are different, but generally BARD, ChatGPT and the like are something else. They are creating content. And the consensus from courts today is when a company creates or contributes for creating content, the company is also responsible for it. That is exactly what Chris and I wrote. Yeah, I'll just add to that that, um, you know, I've often been asked since we talked to the Washington Post, how does Section 230 apply to AI as if it's a yes or no question? But what Section 230 is very clear about is that if you are a content creator, you are not protected. So the real question is, in any particular case, what has been the role of AI? Uh, AI itself defies clear description. It's a very broad field. The simple answer to that imperfect question is that when AI is the acknowledged creator of unique content that's illegal, Section 230 will not be a defense. Uh, But that's only one way of thousands that AI 
is already being used and can be used. Even ChatGPT, which is so often discussed, is just one example of generative AI, which is itself a subset of all of artificial intelligence. And even GPT-4, the latest version of ChatGPT, is itself a a fancy version of a neural network. In other words, a a mathematical system that learns skills by analyzing data. Uh, That's what powers the digital assistants on our phones and our devices like Siri and Alexa. So the broader universe of AI, because it covers so many existing and possible applications, it's necessary to know first what kind of application we're talking about before we can get to the Section 230 analysis. Is it facial recognition or is it self-driving cars? Is it something as straightforward as enhanced internet searches or is it the creation of a novel or a Broadway play or, or a memo giving tax or medical advice? The answers to all those questions are going to be different in, in each case, depending on the facts. So uh, Ron is right. Uh, we agree that when, when AI is creating content, then by the terms of Section 230 itself, there's no Section 230 protection. The real question, though, is... What are the facts? What's really going on? Hey, folks, let me offer one other thought, because for 25 years, my friend Chris has always been giving such thoughtful and detailed uh, uh, answers to these questions. And let me try to boil it down, you know, on my end. What I've always felt is that Section 230 is about protecting users. It's about expanding speech. It's about democratizing the Internet. So that is fundamentally different than chat GPT. Chat GPT does not do those things. So I very much share uh, Chris's much more <laughs> analytical and detailed kind of answer. I wanted you to know what I just described to you is what I'm telling members of Congress who are asking me. They come up and say, Ron, I know you've been involved in this stuff for a long time. And I tell them the stories about Chris and I, and like in the CASA book, the story was Chris and Ron do lunch, and we started talking about this. But I just wanted you to know that in terms of what members are picking up on, it's the difference between 230 and ChatGPT that I just gave you. Yeah, and I, and as always, I I completely uh, am in accord with, with what Ron is saying about this as well. Uh, you know, there are some, e- some easy answers to this question. I, I did the hard part, but but the easy part is copyright. And, and a lot of what is being stirred up right now uh, about chat GPT and about generative AI across the board is, is what is the role of, of copyright. Depending on the extent of an AI product's use of other creators' content, it's easy to imagine a legitimate claim for copyright infringement. I'm a member of the Authors Guild, and the Authors Guild has been very active in this space. Section 230 expressly does not provide any protection against claims of copyright infringement. In fact, it doesn't have any effect on the application of any law pertaining to intellectual property. So so if the question concerns whether AI-created works are themselves copyrightable, or who exactly is legally responsible when AI infringes copyrighted works, Uh, Those questions can all be answered in the courts based on the facts of each case and entirely without regard to Section 230. 
And I'm an author's kid, so I second that response as well. Excellent. So I want to put on the table a different view of Section 230's relationship with generative AI, just to kind of get you to respond and, and spell out your thinking a little more. Um, so Jess Myers, who is a lawyer at the Chamber of Progress, has made the argument that Section 230 would protect generative AI outputs on the grounds that, in her words, the systems are, and I quote, entirely driven by third-party input and do not, quote, invent, create, or develop outputs absent any prompting from an information content provider, i.e. user. And of course, importantly, uh, Jess also notes that these systems do not, quote, expressly or impliedly encourage users to submit unlawful queries. So I'm curious how you both would respond to that, um, since it's such a contrast with your own views of the statute. Let me tell you why I don't share that view. I mean, search engines and chatbots, and there's a lot of confusion about what's what's what are very different. Search engines, which was our focus, of course, provides access to information and responds to user prompts with potential source of information from other websites. That is what Chris and I conceived of as 230 protected content. Chatbots are something else. They respond to user commands, but the answers they generate aren't merely pointing to somebody else's website or video. They are generating content. And chatbots are often advertised or promoted as, in fact, as providing complete answers. So if some search engines at some point down the road, and this is what uh, Chris was touching on, begin to look more like chatbots, the lines may begin uh, to blur and we'll have to think about that. But we want people to understand that search engines and chatbots are very different. Yeah, uh, and I, I've read perhaps not all, but I, I hope most of what uh, Jess has written about this and I I just refer to our earlier discussion that the facts matter a great deal. When we talk about AI or we talk about chat GPT, it depends entirely on how you're using that AI and what you're asking chat GPT in specific to do. If you ask chat GPT to write a novel, which is entirely possible, there isn't any question at that point that chat GPT is creating content. So could we move a little bit just from describing the state of the law to thinking a little bit about what the law should be? So let's assume that your view is correct. Judges agree with you that Section 230 does not apply to generative AI tools, or at least taking Congressman Cox's point to certain iterations of those tools. What's your thought on whether that's a good thing or a bad thing? Should generative AI tools have some form of liability protection that's similar to what Section 230 provides to content hosts? If I can, Ron, let me jump in on this one, because this goes really to the heart of what Ron and I have thought from the beginning, which is that content, there needs to be responsibility. The law needs to place responsibility on people who do bad things. And if if you are the content creator and there's something illegal about your content, you are responsible. And so if ChatGPT or if some future form of generative AI is by our general agreement, the content creator in a specific situation, then yes, absolutely normatively, that creator, the AI that created it, needs to be responsible, which of course then raises questions like, uh, you know, who exactly is going to be responsible 
in that situation, that's going to be a little tougher, possibly can be the source of new legislation. But I, I have also reason to think that we have so much accumulated law on the books that we could probably sort that one through uh, on the basis of existing legal principles. Yeah, I think um, Chris makes another important, you know, point. You know, people ask, so generative AI has got to be different from early internet, you know, startups. The fact was, what we were interested in doing is making sure that we could have innovation that helps the typical American. The typical American, the users who want to connect with each other, the small businesses and the like. Now, all of a sudden, the question is, what about these big corporations, multinationals in some instances, calling for innovation, you know, putting untested technology into use without figuring out whether it's harmful or it's going to benefit our society. And I've got a big stack of letters taller than an NBA center documenting my concerns with various technologies that weren't used responsibly. So as Chris said, I think we ought to be cautious about how we proceed uh, here in terms of reopening Section uh, 230. And just for what it's worth to take us slightly into a different area, you know, there's scores of proposals now to change 230. And I've always had a two-part test. First, what does it mean for speech? Because what Chris and I said from the very beginning is that we wanted to encourage as much discussion and particularly among typical users. And what does it do for moderation? And I haven't seen any bills, frankly, that come close to that two-part you know, test. And in fact, the last time, and you know, you may, I heard you guys were going to ask possibly about you know, projections for bills going you know, to the floor. Uh, one other reason I think legislators are being more cautious is they're seeing that SESTA-FOSTA, that was ballyhooed, much proclaimed as the big answer to sex trafficking, has not worked out very well. You basically pushed the bad guys into the dark web, and vulnerable people seem to suffer, and uh, there are not a lot of people holding rallies today for SESTA-FOSTA. For some people in the tech industry, like me, this is really the first time it's been possible to see the landscape that you confronted in 1996 when all the potential benefits and all the potential harms of the internet were in front of you and you needed to decide the right regulatory roadmap for the future. Um, I think even critics of 230, I think many of them would concede this has been a, an impressive framework given how it's withstood the test of time, even if there are many people who would want to shift various different components of it. I'm curious, given your work then and given where you stood at that moment, looking out at trying to think about what the right regulatory framework for the Internet would be, how do you think lawmakers should approach this issue now? Well, I, I think the practical step now is to focus on what we call the Algorithm Accountability Act. And the fact is, there are very real harms that people can suffer, the typical person, as a result. I mean, these algorithms can control, you know, who's hired, you know, who's fired, people buying insurance, people buying prescription drugs. I haven't gotten a chance really to talk to Chris much about uh, about this, so um, just, uh, just know I'll be interested in, in his response. But I think the next step, I'll be introducing legislation on this, is, you know, again, to 
go to the kind of framework that makes sense to ensure innovation, but also to protect uh, consumers. And I think we ought to have information about audits and things, things of this nature. And in the parlance of the United States Senate, I will tell everybody following this discussion that I am happy to yield the discussion to my friend of more than a quarter century, Chris Cox. You will not find many differences between us. I know that when we were asked um, about the chat GPT, you know, we basically started finishing each other's sentences with respect to whether there ought to be Section 230 protection. So I think you'll enjoy listening uh, to Chris and you can pretty much uh, operate under the assumption that we're in agreement. So I apologize for the bad manners and look forward to continuing this discussion. Chris, uh, you'll prosecute the case for both of us, okay? Well, um, that's, it's an excellent question. Um, and and I, my heart goes out to the people in Congress right now who have to grapple with this and from whom answers are being demanded while they are standing at the front end of the great unknown. We, we don't know where this technology is headed and we have to use our best judgment. But there are a couple things that should serve to calm things down. One is that the law particularly in its written form, statutory form, positive law, needs to be not so much forward-looking as persistent. Uh, it needs to be good to the extent that human beings can make it so uh, for all time, or if not all time, then uh, for the indefinite future. It shouldn't be right or wrong depending on the next change in technology. There have got to be enduring principles. And that's what Ron and I were thinking of when we wrote Section 230. This was really the first law written about the internet. And so legislative council uh, in the House and in the Senate, you know, wanted to define a whole bunch of technical terms and so on. And we pushed back on that very hard because uh, we knew technology was rapidly changing. And if the law specifies with some technical particularity uh, that you need to have a rammer frammer, you need a gizmo, uh, or we're going to regulate these gizmos in a certain way, then practicing lawyers, which I've been one of for 20 years of my career, um, have to give advice to their clients that, you know, we're not sure what will happen if you stray from these specified technologies and do something new that the that the law and the courts haven't haven't addressed yet. Uh, that's all going to slow down technology. So, so what you want to do is stick with, if you will, plain English and and concepts that that will endure and be applicable uh, with the assistance as needed of courts and judges uh, to the specific facts of cases as the technology goes forward. So that's thing one. Uh, the other thing that that should uh, uh, make us a little bit uh, less concerned about all that could happen here is is thinking uh, without regulation uh, is thinking about what can go wrong with regulation because there is a lot that can go wrong with regulation that should give us some humility if you don't know what it is that you're regulating and and most people don't yet uh, there's a great deal of damage and harm that you can do so you want to have a little bit of humility. And so I think those two things together uh, would be my modest suggestions to the people who have the very difficult task of, of dealing with these challenges today. 
a lot of the arguments against substantially reforming or rolling back 230 often point to reliance interests that, you know, the internet as we know it has essentially been built on the bedrock of Section 230 such that altering that could drastically change how platforms behave and potentially lead to really negative consequences. And I uh, would certainly agree with Senator Wyden's point that uh, SESTA-FASTA is an unfortunately good example of that. When it comes to generative AI, though, I've been wondering whether, you know, that same argument might not hold precisely because the technology is very new. It simply hasn't been around long enough for that reliance to have been built up. So I'm curious whether you think that that should change or shape in any way how we think about potential regulation of generative AI. Well, I I don't know that um, uh, there are deep reliance interests right now uh, with things that are so brand new. I mean, chat GPT is has been available for widespread commercial use for less than a year, it seems. Uh, So uh, rather than worry too much about the reliance interests, uh, I would just uh, try and focus on the potential benefits and how we can maximize those while protecting ourselves from the obvious harm that could also come from a runaway computer world that is under nobody's control or worse yet, under malign control. So the senator talked about uh, the need to think carefully about algorithms and thinking about tech regulation. And that's a really nice lead in to the case that's currently before the Supreme Court, Gonzalez versus Google, which of course has to do with the extent to which platforms can be held liable um, under 230 for algorithmic amplification systems that they build. When the the justices were uh, hearing this case during during oral argument, they seemed quite hesitant uh, to kind of take the plunge and and draw a line there. I'm curious what your views are on the case and what you think the outcome should be. Well, Ron and I uh, filed an amicus brief in that case, uh, so I'm very familiar with it. I listened to the oral argument, and, and as you say, it was apparent in the oral argument that the justices were having trouble with the idea that YouTube's up next video feed was any different than search recommendations on Google. The justices were questioning how video recommendations were different than text recommendations since prioritizing material on the internet is really what platforms do. Every publisher on the web has to organize and present third-party content in some way, and that entails editorial judgment, which is protected by both the First Amendment and Section 230. So let's then talk about the, the current reform landscape for 230. Matt and I have been working with a great team to keep track of the different legislative proposals to change 230 on a, a tracker on, on Slate. At least in in my view, and I, I think I'm also speaking for Matt here, our impression is that there's not as much activity now as as there is as there has been in, in previous Congresses. It, first off, you know, are we right about that? And second off, if if we are, I'm curious if you have any sense of why that might be. Well, I think you're right. And I think that the reason is that Congress has been, figuratively speaking, beating its head against the wall on on this question for several years now, with Democrats coming at the question from one direction and Republicans from the other, uh, you know, based on uh, particularly social media issues and their view of whether there is too much or too little content moderation. And what they're finding is that it's very difficult to draw these lines. 
And in particular, it's difficult when the solution is built around putting the government in charge, uh, because ultimately these are questions about speech and you run into significant First Amendment issues when when the government takes control. So uh, I think there's there's a little bit of learning, maybe a lot of learning that's gone on over the last several years, and that has caused uh, people to pull back from some of the Remember the Trump and, and Biden uh, campaign uh, slogans of, you know, repeal Section 230 and that'll solve everything and so on. Uh, and, and as people have, have gotten more sophisticated in their analysis, they are coming up with, uh, certainly in Congress, uh, more targeted solutions and, and things that don't facially offend the First Amendment. Uh, the states, for their part, have been I'd say a little bit more aggressive and a little more risk-taking in their willingness to confront the First Amendment head-on. So I know we we definitely want to talk about the state-level proposals. Before we do that, though, I just I'm curious for your sense of the increased sophistication, as you put it, in addressing 230. I will say that's certainly my impression as well. It seems like we've, in some ways, we've moved a long way from the sort of initial calls to repeal 230 to more targeted approaches. Um, I guess my question to you is whether you would expect to see that kind of increased nuance and sophistication continue to grow, or whether we've reached kind of a plateau insofar as, as you put it, Congress is kind of beating its head against the wall. Um, you know, is is there a world in which two or three years from now, uh, policymakers have had enough time to kind of sit with this and really think it through that we could potentially get a reform if, if folks still do want reform that would make sense? Um, or have we kind of hit the ceiling of what we can expect? Well, rather than thinking of this as a plateau potentially, or or thinking that someday we will reach the promised land where everyone is enlightened on these topics, I'd suggest that it, it's going to look more like a sine wave and that the sine wave is going to be determined by the calendar uh, we have elections every two years for Congress and every four years for president. And so um, the peaks on those sine waves are going to be uh, in November of the even numbered years. Uh, and and uh, those peaks are going to represent not sophistication, but an utter lack of it because people are going to be, you know, beating their chests and, and taking more extreme positions uh, in order to curry favor with their particular uh, base of support. Uh, the sophistication will be at the troughs of the curve, uh, and that'll be in between the elections. And uh, that's kind of where we are right now. So that's a good thing. But I think there's going to be an ebb and flow. Obviously, the activity in this issue is not limited to what's going on in Congress or uh, in the executive branch in Washington. It's also been an incredibly active area at the state level with legislation in Texas and Florida pushed by the right that's focused on limiting uh, platforms' ability to moderate content. And then uh, legislation in New York pushed by the left, which sort of takes an opposite view, encouraging platforms to do more moderation. You uh, have, as a member of the board of directors of NetChoice, which has taken a leadership role in fighting back against some of this legislative efforts, you obviously have been involved in some form um, in challenging some of these laws. I'm curious if you can speak a little bit to how you see the state developments. You know, what, What's your view of where they where things currently stand and where do you see it going? 
Yeah. Um, so you mentioned the net choice litigation. There are uh, two leading cases, uh, one in the Fifth Circuit, net choice against Paxton, and one in the Eleventh Circuit, net choice against Moody. Uh, those are both First Amendment cases, although Section 230 appears in both of them as a peripheral issue. But the basic question is whether the state can insert itself as second guesser over the content moderation decisions of social media platforms, uh, not to mention all manner of internet websites of other kinds. The editorial discretion inherent in content moderation is protected by the First Amendment, and and that protection is much broader than Section 230, which, uh, as we were discussing earlier, has a number of exceptions in areas where it doesn't apply at all, such as copyright. Those cases are pending grants of certiorari in the Supreme Court. So in the meantime, Texas and Florida, the two states involved, are enjoined from enforcing them. Congressman Cox, thank you so much for your time. It was great chatting with you. All right. Happy to join you and and do it again. You've been listening to Arbiters of Truth, a lawfare podcast series in the information ecosystem. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter at patreon.com slash lawfare, where you'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. The podcast is edited by Jen Pacha Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Noah Mosband of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thanks for listening.